This evening I'm going to talk about secular samadhi. And this is carrying on from our reflection the other night on secular ethics. And it will be followed in a couple of evenings by reflections on a secular wisdom. We're probably all familiar now with this expression secular mindfulness which is broadly used to designate the use of the practice of mindfulness meditation in non-religious non-Buddhist settings such as healthcare and so on but if we look at the basic account of mindfulness that we find in the earliest Buddhist discourses, we already notice that there's very little there that has to do with religion, that has to do with past and future lives or holding any particular beliefs, metaphysical or otherwise. Instead, we find already in this text that probably goes back very close to the time of the Buddha himself, a presentation of meditation that focuses entirely on the things of this world, namely the breath, the body, our feelings, or feeling tone, as we might call it, our mental states, and then Dhamma, which we could roughly translate as everything, all phenomena that are present in our consciousness at any time. In fact, we have also in the early discourses a text called Everything, where the Buddha says, I will teach you everything. And what is everything? The eye and the sights, the ear and the sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile sensations, the mind and its ideas, its thoughts, and so on. That is everything, the Buddha says. And anyone who comes along and says, no, there's more to that than you say, then such a person would be making an idle boast because such a claim would lie outside of that person's domain. So this is already quite a strong secular approach. There's no room in this picture of everything for something transcendent, something that's outside of what this organism is capable of experiencing from moment to moment. And when we look at the account of Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, it too remains entirely focused on what we can observe through the senses. The body, the feelings, mental states, and phenomena in general. 
So there's already, I think, quite a, um, a pragmatic, somewhat empirical account of the field within which the Dhamma operates. This evening, rather than mindfulness, I'm going to talk about samadhi. If you're familiar with the Eightfold Path, then step seven and eight are mindfulness and then samadhi. Samadhi is usually translated as concentration. I'm not too happy with that translation. Concentration to me suggests very much a single-pointedness of mind. Concentrating one's mind in a similar way to which one might concentrate orange juice or some other substance and thereby somehow narrow its attention to a particular point. This is um, called in Pali ekagata citta, one-pointedness of mind. But curiously, it's not a term that we find in the suttas. I think it occurs once. But generally it's absent. And yet it's a term that becomes more and more pronounced when we move into the commentaries and into later Buddhist tradition. Rather than concentration, I would use the word collectedness. Samadhi implies a kind of unification of mind, not a concentration. A unification in the sense that our awareness becomes more, more integrated, more collected, more of a whole, but not thereby necessarily targeted on one point or one object. So let's just reflect for a moment on what it would mean to be more collected in our lives. Because that, I think, is really what meditation in many ways is about. It's about bringing our experience into a greater alignment with what we value, with what we're concerned about. It's a non-fragmented mind. Often when we sit, and I suspect we've noticed this, the mind tends, when left to its own, to disperse, to break up, to fragment, to forget, to get lost, to wander. These are experiences that are the very opposite of a collected or integrated consciousness. Samadhi, when it's mentioned as the eighth step of the Eightfold Path, is defined as the four meditations. Samasamadhi, complete collectedness or right collectedness, is considered to have four, uh, 
phases or dimensions or aspects which are called in Pali the jhana, the four jhanas. The jhana, although it's become a somewhat exotic topic in Buddhist practice, is really the term that comes closest to our word meditation. Janati, the verb, is used in pretty much every context. It simply means to meditate in the most general possible way. But the way the jhanas have been understood tend to treat them as specialist forms of practice that are perhaps not even necessary in order to pursue the path to being more awake. And as some of you might be aware, there's all kinds of controversies and disputes about the status of these meditations. Let's leave all of that to one side and go back as far as we can to the source texts in which these jhanas are spoken about. And possibly the most important of these source texts comes at the moment when the Buddha, having practiced very deep states of mental absorption under two teachers, one who taught him how to dwell in the base of nothingness, another teacher taught him how to dwell in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And whatever these are, they're clearly very um, subtle, um, transcendent, non-ordinary states of consciousness. But the Buddha rejected these. He says, these do not lead to understanding. These do not lead to the resolution of suffering. And he left them behind. According to the legend or story, he then embarked on a period of extreme asceticism. He starved himself, he did all kinds of um, practices that caused him great suffering, all with the aim of somehow detaching himself from his body, to become indifferent or equanimous to the state of his physical being and thereby reaching a level of almost total detachment. But he also realised that this didn't work either. And this put him in a quandary. He had mastered at least two of the primary religious spiritual practices that were current in his day. And both had failed him. So what was he going to do? And this is what he discovered. The text says, I said to myself, this is the Buddha speaking, I said to myself, these painful austerities have not led to any transcendent states, any knowledge or vision able to ennoble one, could there be another way? Then I recalled 
Once, while my father the Sakyan was at work, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, untroubled by sensual desires or unskillful ideas, I entered into and dwelled in the first meditation, jhana, which is accompanied by thought and reflection, by rapture and well-being born of solitude. Could that be the way? Recalling this, I realized, yes, that is the way. Why do I fear a well-being that has nothing to do with sensual desire or unskillful ideas? There is no reason to fear that kind of well-being. Yet it is hard to experience it with a body so emaciated. Why don't I eat some solid food? So I ate some boiled rice and junket. Junket is something like curd, uh, the solid part of milk. This is quite a famous passage. And I think it points to three things. It points to how, for the Buddha, meditation that leads to awakening is not achieved by entering into subtle, formless states of mind, like nothingness or infinite consciousness or something like that. Such meditation also doesn't involve unnecessary pain and hardship. And the third point is that this episode shows that how in this quandary he found himself, he resolved it not by appealing to the authority of some other teacher or text, but he, re he recovered the innocent authority of his childhood. As he sat beneath that tree, watching his father at work, he fell into this state of meditation. We don't know exactly how old he was. My guess would be that he probably wasn't old enough so that his father would have asked him to help with the ploughing or whatever it was. And he probably wasn't a young kid. He was probably in his early teens, would be my guess. But the point is, he fell into this state. He didn't seek to achieve it. It somehow arose, or he somehow slipped into this state of consciousness. And what enabled this was, as he says himself, the fact of being in solitude, uh, of being alone, being under a tree, being left to his own devices, um, clearly not in a frame of mind that was caught up with attachments and desires and sex and things like that, nor was he preoccupied with all kinds of 
wandering thoughts and fantasies, he must have settled into a calm state in this rural solitude, and then suddenly he finds himself, as he says, in a meditation which is still accompanied by thought and reflection. The mind is not somehow emptied of thoughts and ideas. It's also accompanied by rapture and well-being. And as we'll see, this is not spiritual rapture, this is physical rapture. And here I think we also tap into what a secular collectedness or samadhi might, might uh, entail. Not a frame of mind that is concerned with spiritual things, but rather a form of meditation that is profoundly embodied, profoundly um, settled into being fully alive in your body. And to illustrate this, I'm going to read another passage, which is found in the, uh, a text called the Samanya Pala Sutta, the Discourse on the Homeless Life. It's the second uh, of the long discourses of the Buddha. And in it, he lays out what is sometimes called the gradual path. And what's striking about this gradual path that he describes is that every step in it is illustrated by a metaphor, a metaphor drawn from the world of everyday experience and life. According to biblical scholars, metaphor and parable are very often indicators of the earliness and the originality of a text. So in the Christian Gospels, when Jesus speaks of seed that has fallen on fallow ground, for example, or a prodigal son, everybody knows what is meant because those are experiences that people in those times would know for themselves. You don't have to be a philosopher or a theologian or a mystic. Parables, metaphors, communicate directly to people from all walks of life and backgrounds. And rather than speak to the intellect, they speak to the imagination. A metaphor or a parable evokes a picture, it evokes a story, not a concept or an idea. And I think, broadly speaking, as a spiritual or religious tradition um, develops and grows, it tends to become less metaphorical in its language and more abstract and intellectual and conceptual. I'm just going to read out the four metaphors for the four meditations or jhanas plus the one that follows, which deals with knowing and seeing, specifically the knowing and seeing that is enabled by these four meditations. 
And I'm only going to read the metaphor. I'm not going to go into the added passages that offer us rather more psychological definitions of these mental states. So as you listen to this, allow your imagination to to, to, uh, to experience and to play and to feel what is evoked by them. Imagine a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice who pours soap powder into a metal basin, sprinkles it with water and kneads it into a ball so that the ball of soap is pervaded, encompassed and suffused with moisture inside and out, yet with no seepage. So the meditator suffuses her body with the rapture and well-being born of solitude, so that no part of her body is not suffused by that rapture and well-being. Imagine a deep lake whose waters well up from below. It has no inlets for streams from east, from west, from north, from south, nor is it refilled by timely showers of rain. Yet a cool current of water welling up from within the lake suffuses the entire body of water so no part of it is not suffused with cool water. So the meditator suffuses her body with the rapture and well-being born of collectedness, so that no part of her body is not suffused by that rapture and well-being. Imagine ponds of blue, red or white lotus flowers that germinated, grew up in and never rise above the surfaces of those ponds. Such plants thrive underwater. <clears throat> From their tips to their roots they are suffused with cool water so that no part of them is not suffused with it. So the meditator, suffuses her body with well-being devoid of rapture, so that no part of her body is not suffused by that well-being. Imagine a person, imagine a seated person, covered from head to foot by a white cloth, so that no part of her body is untouched by that white cloth. So, the meditator sits, suffusing her body with a pure, bright mind, so that no part of her body is not suffused by that pure, bright mind. Imagine a fine, hexagonal crystal, polished, shining, transparent, flawless, strung on a blue, yellow, red, white or colourless thread. A person with keen sight, taking it in her hand, would reflect 
Here is a fine hexagonal crystal strung on a blue, yellow, red, white or colourless thread. So, when her mind is collected, pure and bright, the practitioner directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. She understands, this is my body, having physical form, composed of four elements, born of father and mother, nourished with rice and broth, impermanent, liable to be broken and destroyed. And this is my consciousness, supported by and bound up with it. Now again, I suspect each of us imagined or pictured or associated different things with these metaphors. What they describe are four phases of meditation. And what's striking about them, at least for me, is the complete emphasis on the body. That the rapture, the well-being, suffuses the body. No part of the body is not suffused by rapture and well-being or simply well-being when the rapture fades, or a pure, bright mind that suffuses the entire body. And when we come to the final section about knowing and seeing, what does the meditator focus upon? He or she focuses upon their body having physical form, composed of elements, born of father and mother and so on. And then, perhaps even more surprisingly, the consciousness that is supported by and bound up with the body. There's clearly here a a, a foundation in the meditation that is physical and embodied. This is in striking contrast to the idea of meditating on nothingness or neither perception or non-perception or infinite consciousness or infinite space, all of which are non-physical states. And I think it's quite likely that those were the kinds of states aspired to by meditative traditions of the Buddha's time. We find comparable descriptions in the Upanishads, in the Jain texts, that meditation is thought of very much about getting out of the body, getting out of your physical or your identification with the physical and absorbing yourself in a spiritual, mental uh, space in which the body is more or less forgotten. What is striking about what the Buddha is doing is to turn this on its head and bring us back into a heightened and profoundly enhanced sense of embodiment that is characterized by rapture and well-being. 
And this, I feel, is again a preeminently secular move. It's away from transcendence and the mind and the spirit and the God, and it's back to the felt sense of your own body. I feel that Buddhism, like many of the Indian religions, still carries with it the legacy of an ascetic, renunciant relationship to life, which is effectively one in which we seek to be free from the process of rebirth, which of course means being born in a body again. And that emphasis, I feel, has also crept in to many of the ways in which we speak about meditation. It has to do more with detachment and distancing ourselves, and looking in on what's happening with a kind of equanimity, detachment. But what's, as I've said, is so striking about these passages here is that there's a celebration of bodily joy it's difficult to translate the word pity. I've followed other translators by saying rapture. Maybe that's a bit strong. Others say joy, some simply say pleasure. But I think the point that's being made is that meditation um, is something that is physically enjoyable. It's not a penance or a hardship. Over the last couple of years, I've attended uh, two retreats, one of them here, one of them in Portugal, in which I've just been working on these jhanas. And what's been very clear to me in these practices is that they bring the body back into the forefront of the experience. Um, and particularly, they honour the experience of joy. And again, when we meditate, whether we're doing mindfulness or jhanas or whatever we're doing, it is in fact quite often the case that when we say to ourselves this is a that was a really good sitting one of the things we mean is that I felt good my body felt alive uh, I felt a great kind of physical uh, satisfaction well-being, maybe even rapture I felt great and yet that's rarely emphasized. And perhaps as we continue on this retreat here, we might actually give more attention and give more value to these pleasant, joyful, blissful feelings. They're not sort of just a side effect. Here the Buddha seems to suggest they're actually at the very heart of what these experiences are about. I found this very helpful. I found that it slightly nudged my practice more towards um, acknowledging and valuing 
uh, that embodied uh, and, in, and, and, and enjoyable dimension of the practice. The teacher who I studied with presented this, um, uh, this kind of meditation, the jhana meditation, as one where you first of all settle the mind on the breath, you get somewhat concentrated and still, and then you turn your attention to a pleasant sensation in the body somewhere. Sometimes this is done by reciting the phrases of metta, may I be happy, may others, may, may, may I not suffer, may I be at peace. Um, that, again, is a meditation that generates a sense of benevolence, a sense of happiness, of well-being, directed at oneself and others. And one can just settle on that feeling of well-being. Or it might just simply be a pleasant, agreeable sensation somewhere in the body that's not associated with any particular idea. And to spend time just dwelling in that sense of, of pleasure, of joy. Once again, as I mentioned before, the term used is to dwell in the jhanas. It's again a, spoken of as a kind of dwelling, of settling. And rather than leading us to a narrowing of our attention, what I found very much also with this practice is that the meditation becomes more more extend, extended, uh, open, um, not at all fixed on a particular point. You might start there by focusing on the breath, for example, but as you enter into these uh, kinds of meditative uh, conditions, uh, the mind becomes increasingly open and expansive uh, Focused, but not focused on any particular point. It's as though the whole body feels that it is uh, integrated into the practice in such a way that uh, your, 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 your contemplation, your meditation, um, is suffused uh, through everything that you experience. And finally, just another short text to indicate the significance of this kind of practice. The Buddha says that just as the Ganga, the Ganges, slants, slopes and inclines towards the east, so too a practitioner who develops and cultivates the four jhanas slants, slopes and inclines towards nirvana. Again, this, this image suggests a natural inclination and direction that accompanies uh, dwelling in these frames of mind. It, it flows towards nirvana, which, as I mentioned the other night, simply means uh, those moments when greed and hatred and other 
um, reactive patterns of the mind come to rest, are no longer dominant. This peaceful, non-reactive awareness. And these jhanic or meditative states naturally incline towards that. So this is what we can find in what are probably the, the, the source uh, teachings uh, in the Buddhist tradition. But I suspect that many of you who have meditated for a long time perhaps and studied Buddhism might not have come across these, these metaphors. Now, to me there's also an extraordinary poetry and beauty in these images. They're images drawn entirely from the natural world. They're not at all exotic or abstract. They're extremely concrete. And another feature that we find in, in three of them at least is that they involve the metaphor of water. The soap, the lake, the ponds. Water is an image we find in the early teachings again and again and again. It's, an, it's a metaphor of life. Water is what nourishes. Water is what enables plants to grow. It enables animals and humans to survive. It's also, of course, what's implied in the image of entering the stream. Stream entry. A stream is flowing water something very much uh, vital and nourishing and alive. So rather than a, the detached, somewhat uh, uh, renunciant notion of, of, of stepping away from the world, stepping away from the body, stepping away from rebirth, here we have imagery that actually brings us right into the very heart of life itself. Now, I don't actually consider myself as a particularly accomplished meditator. I know others, friends, colleagues, who seem to be far more dedicated and accomplished in these things than me. And if I'd been more serious, then probably I would have spent more than just two weeks doing these jhana practices. But in spite of my interest in these things, I have little inclination to spend long weeks or months further refining and developing them. On the other hand, I noticed that now, nearly two years later, the effects of these retreats still are very much with me in my formal meditation and also in my daily life. It's as though they provided a, a gentle kind of nudge in a slightly different vector of my life that somehow added or completed or qualified what I thought of up to then to be my meditation practice. 
And so I found that even though I'm not someone who can go, you know, systematically through these jhanas and in and out of them like some people I know, nonetheless I feel that they have brought to my practice a much greater sense of embodiment and have also led me to give greater value to contentment and well-being and joy as part of the process. Another thing that I've learned from doing these meditations is to question a very uh, classical distinction in meditation between samatha and vipassana, between calm and insight, between concentration exercises to make the mind more still and insight practices where I seek to develop greater understanding and wisdom. That might be a useful didactic distinction at the outset to recognize that there are these different approaches, but as one's contemplative practice matures, I feel that these two dimensions become increasingly inseparable. And I'm not sure that persisting in that distinction is helpful anymore. I find it quite odd, to be honest, how the jhanas um, are often uh, considered to be just an option. I've never studied with a teacher up until recently who gave them any importance at all. And I often wonder why. One suspicion is perhaps precisely because they bring you a sense of pleasure and joy. It's as though if you're not suffering a bit, your practice can't really be progressing much. There's a kind of ascetic reserve about pleasure. And perhaps a secular samadhi, a secular collectiveness, will recover and bring back and not be embarrassed about the fact that meditation is joyful, it's pleasant, it's fun, it's nice. (laughs) I'm also aware if I'm honest, that although I must have spent thousands of hours seated on a meditation cushion over the last 30 or 40 years, I still get distracted, listless, and bored. (laughs) On a typical retreat, I will have good days and bad days. I know this is probably not the case for you lot, but this is (laughs) my I can sometimes be overwhelmed by an obsessive worry that plagues me for hours and sometimes days. My moods can swing between elation and despondency from one moment to the next. And to be quite honest, I often feel like a total dilettante. (laughs) But if this is the case, then why do I persist in it? if in many ways it doesn't seem to have made an enormous difference to my state of mind, why do I do it? 
I think probably the most important thing I've learned about the value of meditation is not that it changes the content of one's experience. What it changes is your relationship to that content. In other words, I'm often asked, or it's sometimes I'm asked by people who assume that because I've done so much meditation, I must somehow exist in a very different state of mind to everybody else, or at least to them. But I don't think that's the case. I think that the bulk of what arises in our minds at any moment, in our lives, is simply the consequence of the conditions of our body, of our nervous system, of our psychological, social, religious, cultural conditioning, um, of, our bi- of our biology, of our relations with other people. And we are organisms that quite naturally react and respond to these inputs in somewhat predictable ways. Um, reactivity, which as a practice I seek to let go of, is not actually a problem. There's nothing wrong with feeling anger. There's nothing wrong with feeling sexual desire. These are simply emotions and instincts and energies that arise because of the kind of creatures we are. And the aim of meditation is not to somehow magically cancel these out, find the off switch so that they don't happen again. And this is in fact how the arhant is very often described. The arhant is the person in whom these things just don't happen anymore. Uh, That's regarded as the model, the ideal to which one should aspire, to an almost uh, kind of uh, completely unemotional state. In fact, one 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 of the earliest schisms Uh, that occurred in the Buddhist community around the time of Ashoka, which is like the 3rd century BC, involved a dispute around what were called the five theses of Mahadeva. And the first thesis, which really got the Buddhist community into a tiz, was... Can an arhant have a nocturnal emission? <laughs> um, it, it sounds funny to us, but that point was precisely one that touched on this issue of the arhant as someone who has totally gone beyond uh, sexuality. And yet, presumably, there may have been monks who were thought of as arhants um, who had these troubling dreams. <laughs> so, in some ways, just to summarize, I've spoken again more than I intended to. Um, I don't actually have a problem that it's possible to attain through meditation um, quite 
non-ordinary states of mind that we may find quite difficult to imagine as possible. I've met people and I have no reason to doubt them that one can enter into very deep states of contemplative absorption. Um, one can cultivate lucid dreaming. Uh, and many of these things are now quite well backed up by fMRI readings of these people's brains. But I suspect that the ability to access these kinds of altered states uh, is probably due to many more factors than just being good at certain kinds of meditation. My sense is that some people are more temperamentally or perhaps neurobiologically ad adapted or suited to these practices than others. And again, I think it's a, a great danger to give these states more importance than is necessary. I think they're possible. I think one can get into very unusual states of consciousness. But if these states do not contribute to your leading a more ethical life, I cannot see the point of that. I don't see what, what they can really give us apart from maybe a very ecstatic or maybe very unusual mental experience. But the crucial point has to be whether or not they contribute to our flourishing as persons. So we come back in a way to what I was speaking of the other night, about ethics being that which runs through all of this. The practice of meditation, the jhanas, mindfulness, whatever it might be, are only of value if they contribute to the kind of people or the kind of person we aspire to be. Kinder, wiser, more generous, more tolerant, and so forth. And that, I feel, has to be the final benchmark in which we understand and develop uh, these particular skills of mind. I think that the jhanas, if we boil it down to the essential, are not descriptive of some objectively definable states of mind, but are rather describing a broad arc of contemplative experience which somehow describes the somatic affective pitch of our practice. I think that's what they're on about. And each of us, I feel, needs to work on what somatic affective pitch is optimal for our mindfulness, for our concentration, for our collectedness. So the jhanas, I think, are talking about the bodily dimension of our meditative experience. And the pitch at which the experience resonates. 
There's um, a passage by T.S. Eliot in his poem, Dry Salvages, which says, We had the experience, but missed the meaning. And this too I've pondered for many years. We shouldn't confuse the meaning of meditation with simply the experience of meditation. The meaning of meditation does not lie in the meditative state itself. You might be able to dwell for a long time in an ecstatic and clear state of mind, but that may not be meaningful at all. You can train your spiritual muscles to a considerable degree, but it may not really affect how you live as a person in the world with others. So, in conclusion, I feel that the practice of meditation in the broadest sense has more to do with the refinement of a sensibility towards the totality of your life. From intimate moments of personal anguish to the vast suffering of the world. And when we're practicing on a retreat like this, for example, we're working on this sensibility rather than any particular aspect of it. We might develop mindfulness, inquiry, comprehension, compassion, equanimity. But all of these are facets of a broader perspective, sensibility, relationship to our life as a whole. I also think that no matter how accomplished we are in meditation, we can never be complacent. That this practice is always a work in progress. It's always part of a larger, unfinished project, which is the project of my life. And to also acknowledge, at least I would acknowledge, that probably most of my insights that I've gained through this practice have not occurred on the cushion, but off it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.